Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Catholic Connect podcast. I'm so glad that you joined us here on another beautiful day that the Lord has made. Our good friend Charles Coulomb joins us again from Austria on this episode. I figured, hey, we got to get this year off on the right foot. And who better to ask to be the first guest of 2022 or any new year, for that matter, than Charles Coulomb. And of course, he's always got a lot of interesting insights and things to say. And we have a few laughs along the way. So he's coming up right around the corner. I wanted to share the scripture verse with you because I think it's timely and something that I've been thinking about quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. So I thought I'd share it with you. It's from the uh, letter of St. Paul to the Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of men, who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. Okay, so a lot to unpack in that particular passage from St. Paul, of course, but the one that I keep going back to is the wickedness and the wicked suppressing the truth. And we've been seeing the suppression of the truth for such a long time over the last couple of years and there's no end in sight you know if if we have the secular authorities keep telling us there's solutions and an end to to this madness that we're in but it's uh, very seldom do they ever mention anything about christianity i've actually never heard anything about christianity or the cross of jesus christ so until we hear that we know we're going to see a lot more lies and a lot more falsehoods and a lot more suppression of the truth we need to call things for what they are and we need to stand out in faith. And we all have varying degrees of culpability and responsibility. And of course, the leaders in our church, we need to pray for them. But us as laity, we need to step up as well, not only for our church and our community, but for our, our wives and for our children, our grandchildren, especially us men. So let's pray for each other. Let's journey with each other. And again, call things for what they are. And move forward with a boldness that only Jesus Christ can give us when we are in a state of grace. And who better to rally the troops than our very good friend Charles Coulomb with his insights and his storytelling and, of course, some great laughs along the way. He's a blessing to us and a blessing to our church. So without further ado, here is Sir Charles Coulomb. We'll see you on the other side, my friends. My name is Cliff Heffer. Uh, you're listening to the Catholic Canuck podcast with my dad. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Charles Coulomb is an author, commentator, contributor at many fine sites, including 1 Peter 5 and Crisis Magazine, and co-hosts the Off the Menu podcast and YouTube channel through Tumblr House with Vincent Franchini. And I've had many metanoia moments this past year, and one of them is that the Catholic world is interested in and continues to be blessed by what this gentleman has to say. So from an undisclosed bunker in Austria, <laughs> diligently plotting out a rigorous exercise program to be the backup goaltender for the next Knights of Columbus hockey tournament for council number 6363. Here he is, Mr. Charles Coulomb. Welcome back, Charles. Thank you. Great to be back, David. 
Uh, Always happy to be here in the or there in the Dominion in the, in the north. In the prairies. The great Dominion. The frozen prairies. That's right. right? <laughs> so we've already been chatting a little bit, but we see you, you got the Christmas tree. Uh, Christmas uh, is uh, upon us here. The season, as we record this, is very close to Christmas. But uh, there's a lot of Grinches in this world, uh, Charles, to say the, the least. But uh, tell us what the, the state of affairs is like for you in Austria right now. Well, of course, we're in the midst of lockdown for the Untermenschen, those of us who are unvaxxed. I've had the disease. I had it back in May. And you get over here, unlike the States, where that only buys you three months of freedom. In Austria, they're very generous. You get six months. But my six months ran out. So uh, starting in February, they're going to be charging the unvaxxed for existing. Uh, and then the um, uh, in March or April, uh, as I mentioned, was mentioned before the show, Valneva will be bringing out a, a vaccine which uh, I suspect uh, will be takeable in the sense that it's, uh, uh, it's not uh, made with dead babies, which is always a, a benefit, I think, about any product at all, shampoo, hair grease, any kind of thing. It's not made with dead babies. It's always better than that, which is, I think. But uh, there's also the fact that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't play with the RNA. It doesn't do anything to you per se it's based on the old vaccine uh, formula of dead covids however uh i have been predicting with the caveat that i'm not a medical professional unlike everyone else in the world uh i'm only a mere historian but my prediction has been that uh covid itself would mutate out of existence sometime between now and the summer my suspicion is that the much-touted Omicron is a sign of this. Uh, remember, a virus wants to go in two directions. It wants to get ever easier to catch. And I, I say want. I'm anthropomorphizing, of course. Viruses, not unlike politicians, don't have brains. So they don't, there's not, there's no there there. They're very totally instinctual. But they want to go in two directions, easy to catch and no symptoms. That's the height of success for a virus. And you and I are absolutely crawling right now with all sorts of viruses and bacteria that would have killed us easily in their pure form, in their the first form in which they, they joined the human parade. Um, but they've mutated to a, a, a place where they are symbiotic with us. And this, this will happen with your old COVID, I suspect. Well, and I think Omicron is our first taste of that. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And only one person possibly has died of it around the world. Well, speaking of those with uh, lacking brains, I mean, we've seen the politicians take this opportunity to really run with, with this Omicron. It's like it's almost like the, the ship sinking, but, you know, trying to, trying to hang on to it for, for every last morsel of power that they could get and uh, – Boy, it's it's frustrating to see this when you know the the evidence is so clear and everything is right in front of you. Uh, to to have these politicians hanging on to this, this is a real quite the wake up call. You know, and it's funny, you know, not, funny not in a ha ha way, but in Austria, Germany, other places in Europe, where we're seeing this this oppression of people. Um, 
you know, you'd figure that these countries would have learned some lessons in the last uh, century or more. If they learned lessons, then uh, the Habsburgs would be back. No, the uh, the thing is that uh, uh, the the you got to remember that stupid is the big hallmark of the modern era, and our leaders are nothing if not modern. Stupiditas omnia vincit is an old saying that uh, I coined myself. Stupidity conquers all, and it does, because we're ruled by people who don't know a lot, but are in love with their own power and their own view of the world. They're evil in the sense that their frame of reference is wrong. Abortion is good. Uh, various perversions are good. Marriage is whatever you make of it. Infanticide is okay. Euthanasia is okay. These are, objectively speaking, evil positions. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that they aren't held by some of the nicest people imaginable. That's not my point. But nice and good and evil and annoying are not synonyms. You also have some really annoying people with the very best views, to, you know, to be brutally frank. Uh, we should obviously try to avoid being annoying and try to be good. <laughs> but anyhow, I digress. So the thing is that um, on top of that evil, there's a kind of insanity that afflicts a leadership class. And that insanity, it's not, again, just for the moment, I'm not using hyperbole or joking. When I say they're insane, I do not mean that they think they're rabbits or you know, they, they, they believe that they're, they really live on Mars. That's not what I mean. When rulership are insane, the image in their head of the way reality should be is more important to them even than their own self-interest. So like everyone's go-to evil people, the Nazis, their racial policies on the, uh, in the East of Europe were more important to them than defeating the Soviets, which they could have done quite easily if they dropped all the racial garbage. They wouldn't do it because it was more important than winning. Similarly, our masters would rather have women in combat than win battles. That's the way they're crazy. And it's, they'd rather defund the police. Well, you know, moron, who's going to protect your house? Well, I could hire private security. Yes, I, I got that part. You know, you have everyone else in lockdown, and you're partying your blues away. Uh, in front of cameras. Are you really that stupid? Yes, you are. Are you really that insane? Uh-huh. Are you really that evil? Oh, yeah. Evil, insane, stupid. Those are the three qualities of modern leadership. In the main, there are exceptions. But it's it didn't happen this way overnight, and I'm sorry for those of us who feel differently. But I don't believe this was the result of deep, dark conspiracies or people plotting to be insane, evil, and stupid. But I do think the people who are evil, insane, and stupid will act as though they were part of a deep, dark conspiracy. Or to put this another way, uh, take my beloved country, the United States. Now, Freemasonry 
plays the role in my country that Catholicism does, say, in Italy or Spain. The vast majority of people may not believe it's dogmas, but they have its attitudes. And what I, what I mean by that is not uh, that we believe in sacrificing goats under the full moon or whatever. No, no, no. We believe in the basic revealed Masonic uh, dictum, which is uh, conduct over creed. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're a nice person. That is Freemasonry in a nutshell, or Unitarianism or humanism or any of the other things. So what happens? If you put an American, uh, say, we've defeated Spain in 1898, <laughs> and you find yourself governor of Cuba, Puerto Rico, or the Philippines, even if you're a Catholic, one of the first things you're going to do is disestablish the church. Now, it's not because you got an order from Masonry Central to do that. It's because that's the way your mental universe works. It's just everybody you know are part of this community of mind. And it's the same way you take people like ourselves, you and me and half of our listeners. You put any one of us in a position of authority. And we would act in a certain way, tend to. And it's not because we'd be getting orders from Rad Trad Central. Uh, if there were such a thing, I'd really want to give them a piece of my mind because they're not doing a good job in terms of running us. Anyhow, the, uh, the thing is that this is just the way people are. And hard to believe though it is, our leaders are people in some sense. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I'm amenable to being argued out of that. At any rate, that's half the Grinches this Christmas are the political Grinches. And all I can say to them is get stuffed. You know, until you can come in here and take down my decorations, guess what? You can do whatever you want with your little power, little man. When you are dead, no one will remember you. And that's true of the vast majority of people we deal with in life. Memento worry. Do, do, you know, not even enough Catholics think about that too, right, Charles? I mean, it's uh, yep. remembering your death. And it's just, this life is so fleeting and fast and uh, what we do with it in such a small amount of time. It, it, um, it zips by. I, I mean, I always think of, uh, of Shelley. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. Of course, there's nothing there but a couple of wrecked things in the desert. When it comes to topics with, with Charles Coulomb, I think I've got a million and I have to whittle them down somehow to a few. But uh, uh, yeah, let, let's let's chat about that. Uh, this uh, moto well, proprio, traditionist, custodist, is that what they called it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, uh, so these, yeah the, the, the janitors of tradition. Amazing how quickly uh, these dubias get answered here within a couple of months. And I, I don't know, maybe you missed it, Charles. Was there an appendix, including that dubia on, on Morris Leticia? Uh, I didn't see that one. Maybe it was in the back there or something. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, what's to be said? Look, we've had evil popes in the past. Uh, some have been morally evil. Some have been doctrinally evil. Some have been both. It's no fun having an evil pope. It really isn't. But... Should we have any better? Have we Catholics really demonstrated what we deserve? I mean, I'll put this another way. A hundred years ago, next year, uh, Blessed Emperor Carl died in Madeira. 
Now, why did he die? Well, he died because he couldn't afford proper medicine or food. Now, why couldn't he? Why didn't he have any money? He's an emperor, an ex-emperor, a deposed emperor. Well, because Mr. Lloyd George and Mr. Wilson and Mr. Clemenceau and Mr. Orlando of Italy decreed that until and unless he gave up his right to the throne, they would have no money and their supporters wouldn't be able to send them anything. Now, now, let's think about that for a second, shall we? Uh, why, when it was obviously to their advantage and there wasn't a position to get his throne back, why didn't he go ahead and do it? Well, because he had sworn an oath when he was crowned. That's why. He and his wife felt they couldn't do it. Death before dishonor and sanctity on top of it. Sounds awfully admirable, right? But I assure you, having him die in those circumstances in Madeira were not why the Canadians died at Vimy Ridge or the French at Verdun or the South Africans at Delville Wood or the British on the Somme or the Australians and the New Zealanders in Gallipoli or the Americans at the Argonne. Our fathers did not die so that that man should die so horribly. But he did, and he was a saint, as it turns out. He didn't really get the support he should have gotten from anybody. Well, except his immediate family and a few people. So we um, didn't want that kind of rulership. We still don't. No, we didn't want freedom. We want wonderful leaders like we got, the kind we can vote for, the kind who own us, not the kind who would die for us like Kaiser Carl. A pope like St. Pius X broke his heart for the sake of the church. Even Paul VI, who I lived through and cordially disliked, uh, he comes up with the best thing of his pontificate, Romane Vitae, and he is royally crucified. So maybe, well, even Benedict, who, you know, I'll always feel about him a little bit like, uh, like various people felt about Edward VIII, the man we lost. But I tell you, while he was Pope, it was like every day he'd wake up to a new wonderful surprise. And then he left us. And we got this guy. But while Benedict was Pope, how much support did he get? Okay. Everybody was yapping. It wasn't fast enough. It wasn't enough. All right. Well, you get something else then. How about that? You know, when he became Pope, Benedict, I mean, I remember his inaugural mass, he said in his homily, pray for me that I do not flee for fear of the wolves. That haunted me, haunted me throughout his pontificate. And when he left, my first thought was, well, guess we didn't pray enough. Doesn't that what just... What have we ever stood up for? Doesn't this just compound the, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm 40 years old, Charles. I've, uh, I've seen three popes in my life, and I've only seen one funeral for a pope. This is not, this not, I don't know, I'm just, I'm just saying, does that seem strange? You know, for somebody it, it like my age group, you know. Well, it it does. I mean, my first memories, amongst other things, they're they're uh, 
their John the Twenty Third's funeral and uh, the end, the uh, ending ceremonies of Vatican II a couple of years later. Kennedy's assassination funeral. That's that's where I get, came in on the story. <laughs> that's where I came into the theater. <laughs> Yeah, the, the, that that too is kind of an alien reference to you because of the multiplexes. But in the good old days, when you only had one screen per theater, they'd run the same movies over and over, usually a double feature. Now, if you were late, and believe me, in my family, we're always late. Always. We'd come in, we'd sit down, we'd see the movie to the end, see the second feature, or the first feature, depending on what it was we'd come for, and then stay until we'd get Stay until the, the movie we'd we'd you know come in at played to the point we'd come in at, and then the phrase was this wasn't just us it was just saying well here's where I came in, meaning time to leave. Time to leave. <laughs> yeah. So that's what was going on when I came into the picture when I came into the. Movie you don't have theater. to go home, but you can't stay here, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> go wherever you like, but not here. But see that that was the other thing they they were used to people doing that back then. Anyhow, don't don't get me off down memory lane, or uh, I'll wander down there. For me, and just so our listeners are clear, I've I've mentioned this before, that I I go to Nova Sordo masses. I've never I've actually never been to a traditional Latin mass in my life, and I feel bad about that. But I go to you know, the ordinary <laughs> mass, the um, you know the Byzantine Ukrainian Catholics. There's a lot of them around here. Um, but this news to me. Charles uh, is 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 a kick in the gut because I can feel the pain in our church from the from the good virtuous people and uh, it's not like I don't want to go to a traditional at mass. I always say I'm I'm a traditionally minded, Nova Sordo going, <laughs> Catholic, but the timing of this uh, right before Christmas, um, oh yeah, a couple months after the original document came out, this is um, this is concerning for me and like I said before, it's um, you know three popes two conclaves, one funeral. This is just, it seems like an age of of confusion that it's hard to overlook, right? But let's just talk, I just want to ask you about Pope Benedict for for a second there, because yeah, you know, you look back and you say, maybe we weren't praying hard enough. And you're right. That is exactly the the words I remember the most from him is pray that I don't um, flee for the wolves that are, that are among us. Right. And um, when it came to the traditional Latin mass, um, he seemed to, to uh, to be kind of building on what Pope John Paul II was seemed to be at least starting to encourage to say hey this is this is okay for us to to be proud of our tradition to be grateful I should say for our tradition of all the saints that yeah. have come Charles uh, for yeah. Pope Benedict to to and really open the door and we're seeing this even here in, in Canada it's certainly not as big of communities as maybe you'd see in the United States or Europe but it seems that there's this uh, this real attraction from young people. Especially around yeah. my age, of the people with children, to to attend the traditional Latin mass to see the beauty of the the mass and the and the sacrifice. Um, why 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 are they doing this uh, to to our church, Charles? Uh, like just um, why why is that? Well, because they share with our temporal leadership three major qualities: they're evil, they're insane, and they're stupid. In exactly the way that our civil leadership is. You see, you got to bear in mind that in any given period, all that in the world, how come? Because they're both inhabited by human beings who are subject to the same cultural and historical influences at any given moment. So in the Middle Ages, bishops tend to be a lot like feudal barons. 
you know, because that's what was there. It's just the way it was. Uh, that wasn't, you know, that had some drawbacks, but feudal barons are human beings. Now, today, the model is the corporate drone who just exists to exist, the, the, the bureaucrat, whether he be in government or business or religion. Uh, he's not really there for the end purpose of the, of the machinery. He's just there to keep going. That's the largest bunch. Now, then you do have the ideological people who are insane in the sense that I've meant. Uh, their ideology is more important than the reality. All right. Now then, having said all of that, let's go back to Vatican II. Now, the first thing I got to tell you is that there were some real problems in the pre-Vatican II church. But with certain exceptions, the, the problems were not really liturgical at all. There was no great outcry for change in the liturgy from the lay people. No, the problem was a, uh, a lack of belief amongst the clergy, and not all the clergy either, amongst the 10% that mattered. You see, um, sociologically in any organization, 10% of the people who run it really count. And they may have a title or they may not. So, you know, one important person really is the vice president in charge of uh, uh, software distribution. But his apparent equal, the vice president in charge of hardware distribution, he doesn't really have the same pull in the company that the other guy does. And then you've got a third fellow who's got no title at all, but the top brass listen to him. He's just sort of a consultant who hangs around. You, this is, you know, it's, it's a fluid thing. And this is true of any organization anywhere. And again, it's not good. It's not bad. It's just the way people are. So when that 10% that mattered in the church no longer believed that the church was necessary for salvation or that the sacraments were necessary, which, of course, is the, you might say, the mechanics of salvation. I mean, when you say uh, uh, extra ecclesia nulla salus, there's no salvation outside the church. Is that because you don't belong to the right club? No. It's all about the sacraments. It's, uh, we can check everything from Trent back to the gospel about that. But when they cease to believe that, then there was a real problem. Because what's the church here for then? I mean, apart from giving us jobs, which we want to maintain. And so for some churchmen in that position, uh, they became museum guardians. Others, patrons of the arts, still others, social activists, still others, cheap psychologists, still others, God's bureaucrats, as I mentioned earlier, just keeping the machine going to keep the machine going. Uh, they're probably the largest group of any of them. They're the ones who coined the phrase manage decline. Because as Benedict XVI said in 2016, without that belief, in the church and sacraments and salvation, not only do you lose your evangelistic sense, the desire to evangelize, you desire any reason to be any, you lose any reason to be Catholic at all. The problem was that the machinery of the council was captured by people right. who suffered from the exact problem. They didn't believe in the necessity of the church either. Pius XII predicted just such a thing in his encyclical Humani Generis. I'm not speaking of people like Karl Rahner, who had a real agenda. 
but uh, the majority of them, the majority of the council fathers were people who had been through World War II, had really been smacked around and seen terrible things, had lost not necessarily their faith in the doctrines of the church necessarily, but in the Catholic thing, in the Catholic ethos. And they were faced with the United States, which had saved Europe from the Nazis, was defending Western Europe from the communists, and which was based on non-Catholic principles, and apparently was quite successful. Uh, everything that Pius IX had said in the 19th century about how confessionally neutral states would inevitably become anti-Catholic tyrannies seemed insane in the light of Eisenhower's America. So that couldn't be the problem. No, no, no. The liturgy. If only we could get the people into the liturgy, that must be it. Yeah. And that, of course, saved them from having to examine the real issues, which were themselves. Why are we here if we don't believe this? But it's a lot to expect of anyone to have that kind of clarity. Anyhow, they uh, went to work. And of course, the council itself didn't really say anything too terrible about the liturgy. It was all afterwards. Uh, and my, my little joke is that it's like a cancer operation where they leave the tumor intact to remove all the healthy tissue. <laughs> but they were very excited about it. By they, I don't mean the people who issued the orders. I mean, the people who carried them out. Every parish had this sort of Vatican II priest who was nasty and stupid and pushy. And you did things his way. And he was the one who'd rip out the altar rail and pull out the altar and pull out the statues and rip the, altar, the rosary apart in the pulpit because he was part of the new thing. And we're new. And we're, we're, we're going to attract young people. <laughs> Moron. No. What's really going to happen is you're going to age. Unfortunately for the rest of us, after the generation before you give up the ghost with Benedict, you'll be in complete control. Still living the dreams of the late 60s and the 70s. Trying to impose your will on reality like the Spacing Guild of Dune. But you're not them. Is it, is it fair to say that I'm, I've, I was blessed throughout my life. I never encountered any priests like that. Mind you, I grew up in the 80s, so there was already, you know, a lot of the damage had already been done by then, right? But That's, uh, that's it. The, you missed out on the fun years. Yeah, missed out on the, on the real fun years, right? But uh, every time I've heard some reference to Vatican II, whether that's by a layperson or a member of the clergy that uh, seems to be supportive of, of some of the, the liturgical, I shouldn't say supportive of liturgical abuse, but... Um, you know, these, these freedoms, <laughs> changes. To do, yeah, changes. Thank you. <laughs> but they always say the spirit of Vatican II in the spirit of Vatican II. This is what we're doing. Um, yeah, someone I, who's read the Vatican II documents probably should go through them again. Cause it's been a few years. I can see that that spirit of Vatican II is something a lot different than the documents of Vatican II. Is that fair to say? It's, it is fair to say. I mean, one of the old jokes at the time was that it's the only example that we know of in history where the spirit killed the letter. Huh. Yeah. The, uh, and it was very, very true. I mean, Vatican II requires that the Latin language be retained. Yes, yeah. That's, That's right, right there in the documents. Right. But, uh, oh, we're doing it our way. Yeah, well. I believe even the priest uh, uh, maintaining uh, ad orientum. Uh, yeah, the, the, the first edition in Latin 
of the Novus Ordo has says that the priest will turn around and face the people at the Arate Fratres. Now, unless you expect him to spin around like a top, which I wouldn't mind. I think it'd be fun to watch. Well, we've seen but, it. <laughs> Certainly yeah. that we've seen Woo! it. Some sort of masses, yeah. We've seen spinning. spinning <laughs> Speaking as a licensed liturgical dancer in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Yes, I'm not kidding. I have my, my little certificate allowing me to teach liturgical dance. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, man. Tell you what, one day you may get the chance to watch me do the Our Father, and I trust trust me, you'll never think of it the same way again. Wow! But the my uh, my life as a journalist, you know, you've, what I, what I did for my public, that all of that, it's in the majority of the faithful, however, as with contraception, roll over, and wait, there's more. At the same time that they were dissecting the liturgy, they were also dissecting the church's role in the political sphere and the social sphere. Mm -hmm. To wit, uh, the worthless dog named Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Her Majesty's former uh, prime minister for Canada, uh, approached the Canadian bishops about bringing in abortion. And he said to them, if you will oppose me on it, I won't try it. And their lordships said, oh, it's not the place of the church to dictate. Ooh, ooh. And so millions of Canadian babies had to die because of their lordships. Who, St. John Chrysostom would say, are probably going to snap, crackle, pop with Judas right now. The dead ones, I mean. So that's another thing when we look at the confluence of filthy leadership in church and state. Let's look at our past. Let's look at here in Austria. They brought an abortion in 1975. This is a Catholic country, quote unquote. And it was sort of kind of in those days. Same, same. The bishops could have opposed it. Oh, it's not our place. We're just here to suck up your money and ruin your mass. Ha! Well, so let me get this straight. You're not intervening in the political sphere. You're not maintaining the faith. Uh, your lordship, why do you exist? Why do you breathe and suck up money, your lordship? Aren't you a worthless parasite? I'm just, you know, inquiring minds want to know. How would you characterize a worthless parasite, your lordship, and would you fit that description? Now then, having said all of that, what did the people do? For the most part, went along with it. And because none of these things were stopped at any point along the way, we are where we are now. The path of least resistance always leads down the drain until you hit a wall where reality punches you in the face in ways you don't appreciate, and then you have to start anew. And that, of course, is what's going to happen. The Holy See is on the verge of bankruptcy. It'd be fun to see what happens when uh, Francesco... Uh, has no money to pay his uh, his uh, underlings their their uh, uh, I can't think of the word pensions. All right, it's uh, it's going to be a mess. But you know what? Speaking as an historian, we've gone through garbage before, and if we live long enough, 
if it's not the last days, then we'll go through garbage again. But there'll be a period of revival. I hope I live to see some of it. Yeah. In in Canada, Charles, we recently, uh, we as in the federal government, uh, across all parties, uh, passed a bill banning conversion therapy. Uh, even the word itself uh, is, is harsh, or the, the term itself of conversion therapy is pretty harsh, I think. Uh, but, uh, you know, what a lot of... Unfortunately, I, and I could be wrong, I, I, I can stand corrected, I just haven't seen any official um, statement from uh, the bishops, any bishop really saying, hey, this isn't, when we're, we're talking about helping someone that's struggling with, with sin, we're uh, not saying I'm asking them to talk about concupiscence and go into some kind of a, a theological diatribe on that, but I'm saying that there's a way that you can say this to the world and explain the Catholic Church's stance on something like this. This is important. We're talking about chastity here, but there's there's no there's no mention of that, and it's, it just seems like it's a small example, but it's a it's a significant one that just seems it's like a, we're the church very, of, of uh, just misplaced priorities, Charles. Misplaced priorities. Listen, they shut down the vast majority of churches across the globe, and in the immediate wake of that, of leaving of letting the uh, the faithful fry, of telling them. All you need is a spiritual act of communion and a perfect act of contrition, and you're good to hook. Huh. And then they're going to turn around and dictate. <laughs> I don't think so. Drop dead, moron. It doesn't work that way, you see. Leaders lead from the front, not from the rear, sucking up the dough. That's not how that works. Um, as far as this goes, you know, you can speak of concupiscence and all that, but I'll address it in a way that a modern mind would understand. Why is the government intruding itself between a patient and his psychiatrist? My mind, my choice. It's not up or ought not be up to the government to decide what I think I need in terms of mental health. Um, That's an entirely secular argument. But where do we where do we stop? Do we ban Freud or Jung? Very different therapies. Well, let's ban both of them. Let's just go for Newton countergroups. That would help. Very seventies too. You can see my childhood is government. Not that I was ever part of a Newton countergroup, but they'd always made fun of them on laughing. So <laughs> I, you know, I'm I'm au courant. I want to welcome you all to group tonight. I'm sure we have a lot to share. But seriously. Um, these people do not act as leaders, but they expect to be obeyed. Well, and this is true in church and state. What, Because we have spent so much time being democratic, we've lost sight of what leadership is. It's just oppression. Um, yeah, okay. And then when real oppression comes, we roll over and take it. That that's the way we moderns are. The, I mean, stupiditas omnia vincit. We're as stupid as our masters are, and vice versa. I mean, look, when it, back in the 50s, before I was even born, so you know it's a long time ago then. Uh, back then, people were talking about why Johnny can't read. Now, fast forward. I myself have realized in the past few years 
uh, in dealing with college-age people, how completely secondary education has collapsed. They're taught next to nothing, which makes you wonder what they, what they do with them all that time, because they still have them from eight to three every afternoon. They're, they're doing something, I guess. Whatever it is, they're not teaching them anything. Well, bits and pieces. Anyhow, what has to be understood is that the, at the same time that we proles are being dumbed down, so are our masters. If you think a Harvard education of 10 years ago was of anything like the value of a Harvard education in 1942, you're mad. It's just no comparison. It's, it's not education, it's just crap. Ideology, uh, empty mouthing, paid by the word, as you might say. <laughs> so you have in, what well, I guess what I'm trying to get across with all of this uh, semi-insane ranting is that we have a perfect storm. Many, many different things, some related to each other, many not, all combining together into a massive sewer. If any one of them were different, just like with any other major historical event, if one thing were different, everything would be different. But it's not so where we are. Um, I, I think the very best judgment I've ever heard on this kind of thing comes from my dear friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, who, um, and it's a, a phrase I'm sure you've read and heard a million times, but, uh, Gandalf explains the situation as it was then to Frodo. And Frodo says, oh, I wish I'd not lived to see such times. And Gandalf says, so say you, so say I, so say everybody who sees such times. But it's not given to us to choose what time we shall live in. All it's given to us to choose is what we shall do with the time we are given. And as always, at any, any time in the world's history, we have two things we're stuck with, or three. The first, our internal lives. The second, our life with those immediately around us. And thirdly, depending upon our position, our reaction to the external world. Now, <clears throat> those three have to be kept together in alignment. Your internal life, your spiritual life, the sacraments, devotions, uh, spiritual reading, all that stuff, very, very, very important. Because if you can't keep yourself clued into reality, nothing well. And believe me, it's not just about holiness and sanctification, though that's always the most important. It's also about keeping your, your mind clear. And to the degree that you stay close to God and his sacraments, to that degree, you've got a better chance of keeping a clear view and a clear head. We've had a lot of people here in Canada lose their job over, um, you know, just saying that we we choose not to to sometimes even just disclose our, our our status, right? We just believe in the freedom of, and some of them have even received the COVID vaccination, but they just said we don't want to disclose our status. No. That they're losing their jobs in the medical field, teaching uh, jobs, anything related to the federal government. But this this one person told me, she's like, you know. The Catholic Church would stick by their guns and defend the freedom of religion and freedom of conscience on these types of issues. This would all be over. It's true. Yeah. And that's been true uh, all the way back to the 70s. Mm -hmm. 
with abortion. All the way back then, if the church had seriously opposed it in any country with a plurality of Catholics, we would have stopped it. But in those days, they said, well, you know, uh, the church is really just here to cooperate with others of goodwill in building a more just society. What exactly does that mean, Monsignor? Well, you know, no, I don't know, Monsignor, and neither do you. You're just babbling again. Um, it's, the fact is that the, the institutional church, the churchmen, have woefully betrayed their God and their flock. Now, they've done it before because human beings are like that. And I, I can't help but notice that at the same time that we have this kind of grotesquerie of a papacy, at the same time, Constantinople and Moscow have excommunicated each other and introduced a schism that is insoluble. And I say this because traditionally, we Catholics could look at the Orthodox and say, you have no, no final authority. You can't really, at the end of the day, there's nobody to judge anything. And they could look at us and say, well, your Pope can do anything he wants. He can change reality, or so he thinks. It's as though we've come to the reductionos ad absurdos of both points of view. We have a Pope who really thinks he is what the Orthodox thought a Pope was. And they, in turn, are trying to show us the truth of what we always maintained about them. <laughs> it's, it's really rather sad if you think about it. One of my uh, favorite lines, you know, is that in the West, authority ate up tradition, and in the East, tradition ate up authority. Almost as though the two were intended to be in tandem and counteract each other's worst natural tendencies. Almost as though God had meant for there to be unity. <laughs> but we know that can't be true, because if it were true, we'd have been told. No, it's, I can't help but think that a lot of chickens are coming home to roost in church and state, east and west, north and south. It's as though something were coming to an amazing head. Although what it means, what it's going to come out to, I don't know. Um, part of the problem is when you're living through something, you can't possibly know what its real significance is. I mean, with 9-11, I remember very, very well, I was a mile and a half of the Pentagon when it was hit. Uh, I was in a bus full of seminarians going to D.C. Uh, to take a tour of the Capitol building. As you can guess, we never got a tour. <laughs> But I gave a lecture that night to the seminarians, not the lecture I expected to give them, which was about how figures in history are just like us. We forget that because we know how their story turned out. But everything that we're feeling, the fear, the horror, the betrayal, the loathing, the apprehension, the hope, they all felt that, you know, you read about the resistance in World War II or the missionaries in, uh, in the great northwest of Canada. It's inspiring because you know how the stories turned out. 
but it's important to remember that they didn't know. Or again, to steal from Tolkien, we're the people that they'll be singing songs about one day, even as we sing songs now. Of course, I'd be presuming that we sang ballads, which we don't, because we really don't sing much of anything that isn't given to us to sing by corporate. But anyway, <clears throat> never mind. Uh, Stan Rogers, he was the last troubadour. <laughs> you know, Northwest Passage. Yeah. The uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite jokes is that uh, I was one of Barrett's privateers sailing aboard the uh, Mary Ellen Carter through the Northwest Passage. Nice. Uh, well, I, I, if I don't get a purely Canadian line in there, you know. See, otherwise the CBC wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be sponsoring the show. Oh yeah, they 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 pay so well. Yeah, with. Uh... Out, out yeah. of my wallet, uh, back into theirs, and uh, not as much coming back. So, hey, that's the only reason I'm here. Is that great CBC? Uh, what? You mean this isn't sponsored? This is free? What? What? I take back everything I said. CRTC approved, I think, Charles, because if we went back in your lineage, we'd find that you are partially Canadian, so it would be classified, I believe, as Canadian content. So, um, so I think uh, it would it would skip the the censor uh, police. Oh. Well, I'm half Canadian. There you go. See, I don't want to just talk about bad news. I feel like sometimes that's all we we seem to talk about news. But what do you, what do you say to to the a Catholic um, uh, coming up for 2022? They got a, a new year coming around the corner here as we record this. Uh, things are looking uh, a little a little dark. But how do we how do we maintain um, a right relationship with Jesus Christ, which is our first and foremost responsibility to to save our own souls, but also to yeah. To witness to our, our spouse, our wife, or our husband, or our, our, our children, and then and then our community as well. How, how do we in this time of virus and who knows how long it's going to last? How can we just take up that uh, that baton and uh, and be a witness of Jesus Christ to this world? Well, first and foremost, uh, the sacraments. I mean, you know, if uh, Sunday Mass. If you can go to daily communion uh, and weekly confession, do it. And I'll tell you a funny thing about weekly confession. Pache, those who would say, oh, you're using it as a sort of safety valve. Uh, no, my little, my little munchkin. Uh, the thing about weekly confession is that amongst other things, it'll give you an excuse to avoid, uh, shall we say, habitual sins. In other words, let's say you were a habitual shoplifter, all right? But you know you're going to have to talk to Father McGuigan on Saturday. And you know the best way you deal with habitual sins. You don't look at the big picture. You look at just not doing it now. So you're there at the bay, and you see something you particularly like to nick. And then you think... Do I really want to talk to Father McGuigan about this? No. No. I'm going to give it at some point and next something, but not now. And you manage to get out of the bay just with the stuff that you purchased. Especially because the bay is uh, out of business now, I guess. So that makes it even better. That's right. The chuckle when even... you mentioned the bay, that was, uh, wow. Now that's a Canadian reference right there, Charles. All right. Well, let's not get too Canadian. Let's say Eaton's instead. <laughs> Anyhow. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> you stop by the Tim Hortons, hey, and then yeah, that's a, that one's never safe. mind. Yeah, I don't think that'll ever go away. No matter no matter what happens in the world, Tim Hortons will be still serving up coffee of some sort and, and some donuts. <laughs> that's true. The, they're Canada's answer to the Duncan. But yep. the the uh, the thing is that uh, that's the first thing: frequent communion, frequent confession, uh, the rosary daily, the, uh, the scapular. You know, use your sacramentals, Saint Benedict's medal, holy water, all this stuff, and learn about them. Don't just you know mindlessly do it. Look them up, read about it. You've got so much stuff online now. I mean, there is literally nothing you can't spend hours reading about in the church. Now, mind you, you've got to have kind of a your eye open because there's also a lot of guff out there. So you always have to consider the source. But nevertheless, there's so much material out there that didn't exist when I was a boy. I mean, we didn't have the Internet. I, uh, I had to learn stuff. I had to read, I mean, books. Yeah, yeah. We had them back then. They were called books. And uh, my late lamented friend Ray Bradbury warned with the temperature for burning them. It's Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> the, uh... So the thing is that uh, that's very important. And it, speaking of reading, whether you use real books or the internet, uh, bone up on this stuff. You know, and also, dare I say it, try to do it for fun as well. Don't let it just be a chore. And that also leads me into something else that's very, very important. I uh, know an Hungarian fellow who, in 1944, when he was all of 13, he's 90 this year, when he was 13, it was obvious that the Germans and the Soviets were going to invade Hungary. So he and his father were talking to this old Jewish guy who had been around. And they asked him, what's, you know, what do you think? And he says, well, we're going to be invaded. And the young lad said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, I'll tell you. Firstly, they'll come for the... And then, I'm sorry to tell you, my little baron, they'll come for the nobility. And then they'll come for anyone with a religious opinion. And then they'll come for anyone who owns anything. Well, that's what, what should we do? says, what should we do? First thing, we don't lose our sense of humor. And that's very, 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 very important. St. Uh, Teresa of Avila said, oh, Lord, deliver me from sour saints. Hmm. And that, you know, let's not do that. Hmm. Remember something very, very important. The devil wants us to be miserable. Mm -hmm. And he wants us to hate. And he wants us to despise. And he wants us to be proud. Oh, thank you, Lord, for not making me as those other men. You'll notice how often when we're examining the current situation, we tend to do that. You know, well, at least I'm not like the president, the governor, the pope, the cardinal. Yeah, okay, you're not like them. Great. So exactly what are you like? What am I like? That's so wonderful. Well, the problem is in when we're, when we're faced with great evil, 
the temptation is to think that we're better because of it. Believe me, avoiding evil and finding evil is not the same thing as cultivating virtue. It can be a sine qua non. In other words, embracing evil isn't going to help you help you <laughs> cultivate virtue. <laughs> it really isn't. But Don't do the how not. It's to, not just the how to. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's that's. You, you really do need. You really do do need the 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 negative part, but without the positive part, you know. And if you're going to be a sour saint, well. Ask yourself this, we're all called upon to evangelize, but who would you want to be evangelized by? What would be the most effective way the message would be for you to hear it? Would it be for me to simply come up and say, you know what, you're going to go to hell. Become a Catholic or fry, moron. I don't know how effective that would be. Although I would also be lying if I said there weren't some people for whom that doesn't, uh, for whom that approach actually works. <laughs> I, I'm really not temperamentally suited to deal with such people, frankly, <laughs> but I do know they exist. And, you know, it takes all kinds. Uh, or to put this another way, God really did die to redeem all of us, which means even people we aren't particularly attracted to intellectually or or even if they're the kind of person that normally I wouldn't want to spend tuppence of time with, they have souls too. I may not be the best person to evangelize them, but I can never forget that they need to be evangelized. And if I can't do it, I should try to find someone who can. Uh, say, Bob, uh, do you like really annoying people? <laughs> Why are you asking me that, Charles? Well, I'm just curious. You know, you're 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 a devout Catholic. You know your religion. Yeah. Why are you asking this? What would you say about spending an hour with somebody who would drive our Lord Himself off the cross? Just you know, interaction one on one. What do you say about that? I'd rather you don't set up this meeting, Charles. Great, great, great. Tomorrow, five. Be there. <laughs> but. Seriously, there, B square, right? Yeah. Well, you know, exactly. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit because I think this is it's such a great message that you that you gave, Charles. I mean, the sacramental life. I mean, what what else do we need? And I know you mentioned before that uh, you know, unlike some people that were in lockdown in their houses, you were in a position where you were at least with priests, you could go to mass every day, and uh, I'm sure that 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 the realization that the the cross of Christ, but also the the body, blood, soul, and and divinity of Jesus Christ was enough for you. In certain ways, it's been a bit uh, difficult being away from friends and family. This is the second Christmas. I was home for the summer. Yes. But um, this is the second Christmas away. And that's a bit hard. But my late father, God rest him, used to say, never worry about what you can't have. Make the best of enjoying what you do have. So the those of us who were trapped here uh, on Christmas Day, we're going to have a big Christmas dinner. I bought six, count them, six geese. Uh, we're going. We're that, really going to do it. Turkeys in Austria is what you're saying? <laughs> oh, there. Uh, we had those Thanksgiving, and I think Christmas goose is. Besides, you're Anglo Canadian. I mean, you people should be 
you know, like English, only not as uh, foreign or whatever. But <laughs> you should be eating goose, not turkey. That's an American we eat, thing. We actually we eat a lot of ham, believe it or not. Ham is what we eat a lot of. I don't know. Really? I, you know, I guess it's it's a it's a bacon thing too. Maybe bacon, ham. That's all. We just all love that stuff. So, but yeah, but you know, and that was one of the things. Again, Charles, I'm gonna have to put something on the the back burner for the the next time we chat. Is I really wanted to chat with you about um, you know just the history of of Czechoslovakia, Austria, where my dad was from, and where he endured uh, two brutal regimes of communism and the Nazis around World War II before he came to Canada. Uh, God rest his soul. He's he's passed already, but uh, a lot of the traditions of uh, you know the Slovaks, uh, even just Slavic people, definitely came here. So we still do the meatless uh, Christmas uh, um, with uh, with dinner, and uh, but yeah, usually Christmas Day we celebrate with ham. So I don't know if we're taking on more well, of Anglo tradition or not. I'm not sure. No, no, the ham is very Slovak. There you go. That, that's okay. That's okay. But the real question, the meatless bit. Yes. Slovaks have a tradition mm-hmm. at this time of year. You never want to take a bath in a Slovak house the first day, day or two before Christmas Eve. You know why? Is that because of the sauerkraut? No. That's not a Slovak thing, but I we we, used, we still have cabbage rolls and stuff like that, which is not Slovak at all, but... <laughs> no, no. The Slovaks, what guess. they do... <laughs> carp. Oh, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. And they okay. keep the carp in the tub. Yeah, right. That's why you don't want to take a bath no, there. No, that's right. Because the hot water won't do the carp any good. And if it swallows the soap. So you don't want to take a bath in a Slovak house two or three days before Christmas Eve. I'm just saying. You don't want to bathe with the carp. I, I, I don't care what they've told you. They may have said it's good luck. I, I don't know. But don't you believe it. Don't take a bath with a carp. Yeah, you want to smell halfway as decent when you go to midnight mass, right? So that's right. Well, everyone will know. Oh, the Slovaks are here. Great. So that's you know. But seriously, uh, and speaking of which, you, know, you asked what we could do. Well, what we could do is what we've always done. We could make the very best out of Christmas, make the best of each of the holidays. On April first, there is a very somber but grace-filled centennial. It is the death of Blessed Kaiser Carl in Madeira. So this April Fool's Day, remember that. Uh, in between the jokes, uh, cultivate, a, uh, cultivate a, uh, a devotion to Kaiser Carl. And I'll tell you why. He's a very important figure for us right now. Because what is the basic problem really in church and state? It is a failure of leadership. If you if you reduce it to if you reduce everything to its commonality, we have a complete and total failure of leadership across the board, top to bottom, beginning to end, church and state. Everywhere you turn around, it's morons running the show. Kaiser Karl was the epitome of what a leader should be. Like us, he was woefully betrayed by the very people who should have stood by him. So that's a twofold reason to cultivate a devotion to him in this time. One, that we get sacrificial leadership again of the sort of he epitomized, someone who was willing to die for his peoples, which is what one hopes one gets both in church and state. I mean, the reason why cardinals wear red is because they have a right to be martyred for their flocks. 
I mean, that, you know, we do have the materials. We do have the ideas flying around. Just nobody knows them anymore. Nobody uses them. But they are there. A little bit like the reserve powers in Canada. Oh, what I wouldn't do for a governor general to just dissolve parliament and then not call it back. You have some, you, but, if, you, if you ran a political party based on that, you might actually do something, I think, now, especially in the Prairie Provinces, Charles. But you know what? I do want to say one day, I'm going to get that book because you're, you're referring to Blessed Carl, right? Uh, no. That's the book that you that you wrote. I haven't read it yet, so I'm going to read it. And then when I read it, you're going to have to come back and we're going to chat about that because I think that's a, that's a, a, not a story, well, a great story in itself, uh, but a great, uh, a great life and a vocation and... Um, I think we need to, we'll have to dedicate a whole show just to that. I do want to ask you about St. Charles Borromeo because you mentioned about the crazy, the, the politicians. And, and so we're talking about St. Charles Borromeo, who I know I've mentioned probably every other podcast because I, I, I love this man so much, the saint. Um, I didn't know it at the time, Charles, but when I was a child in, in my youth, we had a, a small little country church in the town of Tawatna of, you know, uh, eight people, including the two dogs and the one horse that were still alive. But we had St. Charles Borromeo Parish. Didn't know much about St. Charles Borromeo. Didn't really, there's a, our, that little parish shut down when I was about six or seven. But boy, I when I f- remembered that that was who it was, and then during this pandemic, well, unfortunately, Catholics just aren't reading enough about what this man did. Um, oh. When the, the politicians headed for the hills in Milan, he came in and, uh, you know, radically transformed the spiritual lives and, and and saved a lot, even just with their, you know, just their day-to-day needs when it came to clothing and food. But then also, just for fun, after he was done with the plague, he was a major part of the Counter-Reformation to bring yeah. um, some amazing uh, fruit back to the church again. What a champion this guy was. Do you know some things about St. Charles Borromeo that you can share with our, our audience? Well, a couple of things. Uh, one is that the Borromeo family crest has on it the word humilitas, mm. humility. Mm. And before he came along, everyone used to say that that was the only place you should see it among the Borromeos. The only place you should see humility was on the coat of arms because they were all proud as the devil, people would say about them. Well, he was a cardinal nephew. And unlike most cardinal nephews, he didn't take advantage of it. Mm. So much so that when his uncle died, uh, rather than staying in Rome as the successor wanted him to, he said, you know, you're not my uncle. I'm going to Milan. And he did. Uh, Everything you said is quite true, but it's interesting that his intervention in Switzerland Hmm. was key to maintaining those cantons that are Catholic today because he formed, I mean, as was true wherever the Reformation had gone, the Catholic resistance was kind of like the way it was to abortion in my day, like very little. Mm. Uh, but St. Charles Borromeo rallied the troops in Switzerland and saved canton after canton. And the Catholic cantons bound themselves together into what was called the Borromean League after him. And the institutional position of the church in Switzerland uh, dominant in more than half of the cantons is directly responsible to St. Charles Borromeo's politics. Now, it's interesting that, and here is a likeness with him and Kaiser Karl, 
uh, who he's, Kazakal, uh, was actually named after Charlemagne, obviously. St. Charles Borromeo was his namesake. And so every year on November 9th, the big feast at the Stephansdom, the, uh, the three years that he was emperor. Well, the thing is that both of them, there was religion, there was politics, there was the, the social side of things, the charitable side of things. Now, we moderns who know everything because we're like some smart stuff, that's why everything's gone to hell in a handbasket because we're so brilliant. Uh, by, the, by our works, you shall, uh, you shall know us. <laughs> um, we tend to separate these things. But for both Charles's, they were inseparable. They were all piece of a 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 piece. Uh, Charles Borromeo's organizing the Borman Guild was as much a religious duty for him as reorganizing the uh, uh, the mass uh, sequences and so on in uh, in Milan, or organizing processions against the plague, or organizing food for the poor. So similarly for Karl, uh, organizing poor relief in Vienna during the war was as much a religious duty as consecrating Austria to the Sacred Heart which was as much a political move as attempting to federalize the empire. You see, there was no separation in their minds. And that, I would submit, is because in reality, there is no separation in these things. Remember what I said earlier about the closer you get to God, the clearer your vision. We see these things as separate, tidally apart from each other, precisely because we are so far from God. Well, big thanks again to Charles Colomb for joining us on this episode of the Catholic Connect podcast. And uh, hey, we started this year off right. And I love the encouragement from Charles to live a sacramental life because that's what it's all about for us in our own personal journey to holiness. And that's how we're going to bring the world to Jesus Christ. And that's our calling is to evangelize and to keep the Eucharist the source and the summit of the Catholic faith at the center of our lives. So go to adoration, receive the Eucharist worthily and go to confession often. Remember to follow us on Facebook, Twitter. We're also on Gab and on Getter in case we ever get censored off the so-called big media platforms. We've got a backup plan. And remember, fight for freedom and liberty, everyone, not just for yourself and for your family, but for everybody. Be brave and do something. And in order for us to have that foundation that we need to evangelize this world, we need to be in a state of grace ourselves. And we know what we got to do. We've got to go to confession at least three times every year, every Lent, every Advent, Anytime you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon.